welcome everybody. I am your host, David Aponte, and we're going to have a very fun session today about CICD or continuous integration and continuous delivery. And we're going to apply within the context of machine learning. Uh, I have a really awesome guest today. I have Elle O'Brien, which I'll introduce in a second. Uh, but she's been working on a really awesome project, which we're going to get to in a little bit, that relates continuous integration and continuous delivery to machine learning. And we're going to talk about CICD in general. We're going to talk about why it's difficult for machine learning. Um, and we're going to get to know a little bit about this new product that is, we're, I'll get to that in a second. But without further ado, let, let me introduce our guest. We have Elle O'Brien with us. She is a data scientist at Iterative Inc., uh, the team behind DBC. So if anyone has used DBC for uh, versioning their data or doing any sort of, uh, I guess it's like Git for data in, in some ways, right? Yeah, that's the tag, yeah. Uh, she holds a PhD from uh, the University of Washington, where she previously conducted research in computational neuroscience and uh, was working also on space perception. Uh, she's also worked uh, as a chief scientist at Botnik Studios, which is an AI comedy writing collective. That sounds super fun. Can we, just before we even move forward, what is an AI comedy writing collective? Yeah, it's a bunch of uh, comedy writers and then a couple of us that are into uh, web development and ML. And then we put together kind of predictive text keyboards and then all the comedy writers go to town with it. Um, oh, it's great. I mean, we had some things so like, it was, yeah, we had a Harry Potter book chapter that went viral. That's what we're most known for. Um, yeah, that, and uh, I think we had like a Seinfeld script that did really well. You know, it's just like wow. a weird, weird bot writing, bot oh, human hybrid. Cool. I, I, I hope I'm not embarrassing one of my coworkers, but I work with uh, one someone who is into basically like tech comedy, and uh, he'd done some stand up before, and I just love it because it's you know it, the, that integration between like talking, you know, talking shop, but then also being funny and like you know, kind of being able to joke about it. I love that. Probably one of the primary reasons why I'm on Twitter, just to see the, the memes and, and the kind of the jokes about <laughs> what we do. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we have an awesome guest with us today. And uh, before we even get into CICD, I would love to know a little bit more about you. Um, I've gotten a chance to speak with you a little bit, uh, seen you in the, the MLOps community chat, um, and you're working on really interesting stuff. So even before we get into it, how did you get into the space of machine learning? Yeah, so um, I did the last 10 years of my life have mostly been in academic research in some variety. Like when I was an undergrad, I just like ended up working in a neuroscience lab because of I didn't want to go scoop ice cream for the summer. So like, I mean, I just applied because it was a thing um, that paid for the summer. So I got started that way and I just kind of never left for a while. I mean, I did go in and out a little bit, you know, but I was always kind of near by people doing academic research or involved in it. And I wrapped up my PhD in um, January or November, actually, technically is when I defended of last year. Um, and I had always worked around um, kind of problems in biology, but using mathematical modeling. Um, like my favorite tool has always been getting to use a really big computer to run a mathematical model. Um, I love that. I never really wanted to be hands-on with like, you know, any kind of subject or any kind of like wet lab models. I just wanted to be on the computer all the time. Um, and it was cool, you know, and I, I had, um, I, I ultimately decided I didn't want to keep going and do like a postdoc, which is kind of the standard route. And I think a lot of that had to do with like, I could see that there was a lot going on in ML and I was really having trouble kind of combining that with 
you know, the scientific work and it kind of felt like a place, you know, ML was a, a place I wanted to be because, well, it's, it, there's a lot of action here right now. Yeah, yeah, tons of action, lots of hype sure. too. I mean, yeah, a lot of that. I mean, one thing is like when I worked in a lab that like I have a paper that I'm working on right now and it's about like lobster digestion and like there's no hype there. Like there's no spin, you know. Lobster <laughs> digestion. Yeah, it's a mathematical wow. model for uh, <laughs> neurons of the stomach of a lobster and it's okay, cool. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool though, yeah. But it's like, you know, I miss how hypeless that was, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah. There's definitely yeah. a ton of that, you know, I feel like it may, it may, may even take away some of the joy. But one question I have is, so coming from this research background, now working as a data scientist where you're building this product for production use cases, right? How was that transition? Uh, was, it, was it hard? Was it very different? Did you notice a big gap between what's going on in academia versus what's going on in industry? Oh, it's huge. It's so much bigger than I ever thought. I mean, I always thought like, as a student, I was like, I'm great at coding. And then it turns <laughs> out I get here and I'm like, Oh, not quite, you know, like there was a lot to learn. There was yeah, so yeah. much that it turned out, you know, because I just feel like the standards are different. You know, like I, as a student, you have to code a lot. As a scientist in general, you have to code, but like nobody ever checks it. You never publish it. Um, you know, there's not like code review. There's not like, you know, most people yeah. don't have even like a GitHub repository. So it's like, as long as it seems to be working, nobody's ever gonna look at it or try to figure out what you did. And now I'm working in this organization where like, it's incredible. Like people deploy software sometimes like several times a day, you know, it's really cool. And there's all of these like practices and it just completely wowed me how much better life can be when everybody's like got a workflow of like, okay, you're checking in your code now, we've got a branch, we're gonna merge it, we're all gonna discuss it. Like it's, it's yeah. great. Yeah, for sure. I feel like for me, one of the differences I notice is like the, the, the it's like a way to collaborate and, and thinking around that, you know, where it's not just like my own brain and my own thoughts and my own ideas, right? I have to share that and I have to distribute. It has to be reproducible. It has to scale. So it's like the same thing, but then kind of like blown up. Um, but I do think that there's definitely some very different ways of approaching. I think, I'm sure it's very valuable too, though, to have done some research. Would you agree that it help inform the way that maybe you think as a data scientist? Totally. I mean, I feel like I really got the best possible statistical background that I feel like anybody, yeah. like, I'm so happy with that. And I really think it took like all 10 years to learn it, you know, yeah, and I'm yeah. sure there's more, like if I had kept going, I'm sure I would have discovered like it goes even deeper. And I just feel like the ability to kind of look at a model and go like, eh, this is probably junk, you know, is like something that I feel like took years to kind of discern. And so, right. And so I just, I don't think I would trade that, you know, like I feel like it's a complimentary training, but it is, it is hard to do both, you know, because if it's hard to do yeah. like push this level, like production quality code is yeah. not incentivized very well in labs. So that's tends to be difficult. And likewise here, there's not as much incentive. I mean, also because I'm not like a lot of times my data science projects are really working on tools. So now I'm not really as involved in like making inferences or, you know, mm -hmm. something like that about I'm not like really an engineering doing sort of role. It sounds right. Like. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I miss that sometimes too, you know, so there's yeah. lots of aspects. Yeah. I, I feel like in my, in my current company, I, I, so I was working at first on the core engineering team. Now I'm in the core model development team. And that I kind of sit in between those two things, you know, the research where the, there's lots of ideas, lots of things that may not actually make it into production, but then also knowing how to actually productionize these things. And it's, it's tough to balance, I find. Like, 
I, I find that I'm a very slow thinker when it comes to modeling. I like to, you know, I have like an arts and craft sort of approach where I like play around, you know, and I explore ideas and sometimes it's just this crazy tangent. But when I'm like engineering and I'm building something, it's much more rigorous. I'm much more organized. I'm not an organized person in real life. You can ask my wife. But when it comes to engineering, it's like, I'm like, you know, I got to do this because I'm building something. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking a little bit differently. Um, but I, I do think that it actually is a strength of, uh, and I'm sure you would agree that now thinking about how to put something into production, but also knowing how that like that algorithm works, you know, how that like how to really have an intuition around a good model or a bad model. That's that's invaluable. And I feel like, you know, you're saying it, you know, you've studied this for years. I have so much to learn. You know, there's it's a it's a vast field of math. Right. Uh, and to me, honestly, a lot of the, the modeling is math. Right. A, a good foundation on statistics goes such a long way in data science. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And there was something you said that like uh, it sounded very close to my own experience too of like, you know, when you are going on tangents and like, I mean, I think one of the best things about doing like best and worst things about doing like pure data science is like, you can be like in a rabbit hole for a month of just trying <laughs> yeah. things out or exploring. Sure. You know, yeah. and nobody comes checking, you know, about your progress. Like, it's hard to know what's progress. So you can really, like, get into something by yourself. And then it's just totally different from the expectation of, like, I'm going to check in code once a day, roughly. Mm -hmm. And another thing I'm noticing, too, is, like, it's, it's hard to quantify the value of some of that research, at least in my mind. Like, when I think about, like, talking to stakeholders or, like, we, I just had a review of my job, so I had to talk about my accomplishments. When you're, when you're talking about engineering, it's like, oh, I built this, I built that, fix this, fix that. But if it's a research project, it may have been actually very, we learned a lot from this, you know, this rabbit hole, this tangent, but it was never productionized. So it's hard to, to I guess, immediately demonstrate to a stakeholder the value other than, you know, we learned that, you know, we're overfitting when we do this or something like that, you know. So it's, it's yeah. hard. It's, it's hugely hard. I mean, it's so hard in research too. Like one of the reasons I also was kind of, you know, looking to try something different than academic research is that there's so much pressure to publish because like publish mm -hmm. is the metric, right? It's like how yeah, much code yeah. did you push that gets merged into the main branch is one metric of productivity and in academia it tends to be like, how many papers have you done? And like, sometimes your discovery does not warrant a paper, but it was still very valuable. And like there have been Nobel laureates that would go like years without publishing sometimes in between, you know, discoveries. And so yeah, it's, yeah. it's incentive structure that I didn't feel thrilled to be dependent on. Yeah, I, I, I would, I, I never, I haven't done a PhD, but you know, working with a lot of PhDs, it's, yeah, I hear a lot of, you know, war stories or, or how that, that, you know, this, you know, this pressure to publish a lot can be overwhelming, you know, it's very, you know, it's just, it's a lot, you know, and, but it's also, I feel like a lot of people learn so much from that. I'm sure you did too, you know, yeah. putting all that time on one problem, focusing on that. Um, it's, I think, invaluable to be able to learn how to do that, to, you know, stick to something, but it's great to also like play around and do a lot of different things. Yeah. I think it's cool that right now is kind of like, it's, it's like, I feel like it's easier for somebody like me to transition into a community like this probably, you know, I don't know for sure, but it's, it's like a good moment where there's enough overlap of like, if you've done, you know, a lot of coding, Absolutely. like data science is open, right? To people that are not like master coders that are like, yeah. Yeah. maybe confident, yeah. but you don't have to be a pro and you can still kind of get in here. And that is a cool opportunity. Oh, hundred percent. I, I have, um, I just, you know, just a little tangent, but I have friends and family, you know, who, who never, you know, are undocumented, maybe not legal in this country and struggle with finding you know, a way into, you know, a good career, 
to me, technology, data science, machine learning, it is like, it's really all about, like, it's a meritocracy. If you can learn these things and you can, there's so much content out there um, to get you up to speed. But it is, I, I do think like, you, it's, I'm glad that you mentioned that, you know, you, you spent a long time and you, you're glad that you did that because there is a little bit of, you know, sometimes shallowness, you know, people can, you know, follow some tutorial and think that they fully understand that, you know, the, the real fundamentals, but it's so good to also have people that have, you know, that, that, you know, years in that one field. But I also appreciate the people that are coming from something different. I, myself, I was a teacher, you know, I was in a completely different field, but I was able to make it. And I think that there's something about, maybe it's just how it's a lot of open sourceness. I don't know the, the type of people that are in it, but it is a, a great place for opportunities. I don't know how else to describe that, but maybe, maybe you kind of get what I'm saying where it provides a lot of opportunity. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, it's like, there's so much that you can do now to teach yourself and, I mean, that was a lot of what I did in my last two years in academic research was like I picked projects in data science that like I knew nobody was going to give me credit for academically, but just, you know, was what I wanted to learn because I felt like, okay, I can't miss out on everything that's happening in ML. Like you could kind of see that this was very quickly changing a lot of the ways that we do predictive modeling. And I basically yeah. just had like this big fear of missing out. And I was fortunate enough to be in a place where like, you know, I could roughly, I was okay that I could like devote the time, you know, and I think like not everybody has that ability yeah. to put some time into learning these skills on top of their full-time job, yeah. which can be pretty rough. Um, but I just got lucky that like it, it worked, you know, and part yeah. of it is like the job I had was really flexible. If I just wanted to code for eight hours, how to try to figure out how to, how do I make a CNN? Nobody was going to come <laughs> talking, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's wonderful. And I think this is, this is a, a good time to now start diving into the meat of this. Now that we have a, a good understanding of L, uh, definitely reach out to her. She's awesome. Uh, but today, the bulk of what we want to talk about is CICD for machine learning. And before we even get into any of that, it'd be great to kind of, I know a lot of you guys are engineers and scientists and you're sure you're familiar, but let's, let's go to the basics. Let's talk about what continuous integration, what continuous delivery is. So I'm going to start with continuous integration. I uh, did some research and kind of got this decent definition. It's about when you have, let's say, some mainline code base, but then you have a lot of people working on it and they're making variations of it. Maybe you're adding a new feature to this code base. Maybe you're fixing something. Uh, maybe you're just trying out some experimental thing. But at some point, you're going to have to integrate that into the mainline code base. And maybe you're doing this actually multiple times. In fact, usually you're doing it multiple times a day and multiple people are working on the same mainline code, uh, code base. So at, generally, you take some copy of the code, do some stuff to it, right? Push it back to the master branch. And you're going to be doing this in some regular way. Now, the tricky part about this is how do you coordinate all these different things, right? How do you coordinate all these different features, these bug fixes, because I don't know about you, but I've definitely been in integration hell before where there's merge conflicts, you know, someone, you know, started fixing something, made all these changes, but didn't really, you know, write it on the merge request and let, let people know, but we merged it in any way. And then we're finding out everything is breaking downstream. Um, but it's basically this practice where you're trying to continuously integrate a lot of people's work. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, so you want to be checking in pretty frequently. So you don't want to have like, you know, your own feature branch where you're working on something and you go weeks and weeks without checking that great against point. what yeah. is happening, you know, on the main, which is often a production branch for, a, you know, a typical kind of um, software project. And the other idea that I think goes with it is that every time you're checking in your code, you're also going to be testing it. Um, so you're testing 
all the time. Um, and this is kind of like a standby, as like a standard of DevOps, which is the idea, you know, we always practice testing our code. We always practice what would it be like to have this in production? You know, we're, we're going to be pushing code, doing that very frequently. We never get out of practice. Yeah, I love that that point about it, you know, don't let a, a merge request stay out or open or pull request stay open for too long. Um, that's that's a tough one, right? You know, you have the another one that I, I think is good practice is smaller ones. If you can kind of like keep it on one thing and do that one thing well, and then if you have another idea, you know, you notice that oh, this I want to do this, open up another merge request or pull request for that. But uh, it's yeah, it's totally. it's hard to do all these things, right? You know, there's sometimes you know you're waiting on someone else's work to continue your work, so then you have to keep this this branch open for a long time, and then you know someone else fixes something because you know the production system worked, but it wasn't working, and now you have a merge conflict, and now you got to go fix all these references here. Like I, man, this is my day to day, you know, where I have to kind of deal with this. But very relevant for machine learning, right? This is typically how. You know, if you're working in a production system, your machine learning workflow is going to be very much a part of this, right? You're going to have to integrate maybe a model, you have a code base, uh, whatever it is, right? You're going to constantly have to check it in and share it with people. Now, yeah, right, closely related to this, go ahead if you want to say anything. Oh, no, I was going to say, I mean, so it's like re rele relevant to ML, but it's also pretty challenging with ML because of like, so, I mean, as we're talking about so much of this is kind of Git centric, right? Like we're talking about Git branches. We're using a Git flow where we're developing features on a branch and then we're considering if we want to merge those in. And I mean, Git does not play nicely with all machine yeah. learning projects. Yeah, and we're going to get, guys, we're going to get into why that is and uh, in particular some of the challenges that, that, that happen with that. Um, but related to continuous integration is continuous delivery. Now, before recording this, I botched this. I said continuous deployment. I said continuous, I forget what I said, development. I said all sorts of things because typically I just say CI/CD or CI job. But what we mean by CD is continuous delivery. And uh, just doing some research, it says it's anytime you're releasing, the ability to release at any time, right? To push to production at any time. Um, it's also the ability to increase speed and frequency of releases. So you want to be able to do this pretty regularly, maybe you know a couple times a day, even uh, you know push some changes to a model, put it back into production. Um, it's really good too if you can do this frequently. One because it reduces risk, right? We talked a little bit about you know holding uh, or having a merge request open for too long. Uh, it also reduces cost if you can regularly fix things, regularly deal with issues, you know, and re-release them. Um, but also time too, right? You know, I, I, I don't know what it's like for, I'm sure some people in the MLOps community were, have been in the software industry for a long time and maybe have a sense of what this was like before even some of this technology was out there like GitLab or GitHub. But um, I, I, can, I just know that if it wasn't for the ability to use some of these tools, it would take a lot of work to kind of, or do this all on my own without Git, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, I also feel like I don't know what it was like in software development before this, you know, before yeah, well, this movie. That's why I'm like, what is that? <laughs> I mean, so DevOps, luckily, I mean, I think it, it's, you know, been around for at least a decade now. I think it's, you know, mainstream. I mean, every major tech company, to my knowledge, is using some of these principles at least. And so yeah. I, I know that there was like a time before. I have this book that I'm going through right now, the DevOps Handbook, which is oh, like, nice. this is like, yeah, we're going to have to link that book. Yeah, yes. we're gonna have to link that it's book. a good one. Uh, it's really good. And I kind of recommend this. It's, it actually is kind of written at a level that I think like a manager could get it, you know, um, so nice. it, it's it's a pretty nice. For a broad audience. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. Really good. Books like that. 
Yeah, yeah and, this is you know, the best. It's like, yeah, the time before GitLab or GitHub. I don't know what that's like. You know, for anyone listening, please let us know. Uh, fill me in on my, you know, my, what I guess whatever it is, my uh, chronological snobbery. I forget what author I read a while ago. <laughs> said yeah, that. We're pretty uh, lucky. We're like privileged to just show up after this hard yeah. work has been done. <laughs> I know. Uh, we already yeah, figured yeah. out how to make this work. But like I have worked in, you know, startups where it was not in place because of things were just too small um, or, you know, kind of junior. Like, and I had once, you know, working on an ML model and, it, and I would work, like my job as a data scientist is like the only data scientist, right? And we had like one person who works on deployment for making the front end and everything. And I'd say, okay, I made a new model, let's test it. But then it would like, I mean, I think we actually just like, it went stale. Like we were, they were like, okay, I will get to deploy this as soon as I'm done with all the other tasks. And it just oh, never man. happened. So like, oh, there's man. no ability to have any feedback on how the model you've created as a data scientist is going to work in production. Like, yeah. I didn't even know if it could work in production. Like if the dependencies were right, you know, if it was gonna break something, I had no idea. I think that's one of the, the greatest things about continuous delivery is you get feedback quickly, right? You know, let's try out this idea. Let's see if this actually has impact on the business. And, you know, before you, you know, I can imagine before that, you know, it must have taken a long time and you probably lost money, right? The quicker you can test out a good idea and put it in production, I'm sure the, the more uh, or the quicker it could actually translate into actual business value. Um, right. So that you can Absolutely. get that feedback and do something with it. Because like you mentioned, that sucks, you know, like, Probably, you know, like you have to wait because of all these other things happening. Uh, and then next thing you know, the model is stale. Maybe the distribution shifted or whatever it is that's going on. Um, and yeah, so we've kind of been talking about some of these tools. Obviously, Git is a huge part of that. Not the same thing as GitLab and GitHub. But there are a lot of tools for this, right, to make some of this stuff easy. We're, GitLab is what I use in my, my everyday work. GitHub is what I use for personal projects. I've heard of Jenkins. Um, I'm sure there's a lot, lot, lots of tools out there. But there seems to be a good amount of tools in this space for DevOps, right? It's, it's like yeah. you said, it's been around for a little while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, yeah, there's quite a good uh, ecosystem. And, you know, I mean, we're GitLab and GitHub are the two that I'm most familiar with. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's a, it's a great ecosystem. Yeah. And I guess what they're all trying to accomplish is some sort of uh, what I'm, at least my, my gist of it is there, it's for version control, right? And there's a lot of other things that it can do. But it's the ability to version uh, software, right? Especially when you have large teams. And that's what I think one of the great things about GitLab or GitHub is, is the ability to share, to collaborate, even at large, large scales. Um, it facilitates collaboration, especially across cross-functional teams when you have a tool like this. You have one place where you can store your code, check in your code, review your code, test your code. Um, it allows you to make small changes incrementally, right? Continuously integrating those changes, continuously delivering them and continuously getting feedback on them. Um, but overall, it seems like a way to keep track of like what you're doing. I mean, that's what, when I first learned about, you know, GitLab or GitHub, that's kind of what my first impression was, is it's just a place to kind of keep track of everything. What is your, yeah. how would you describe like this whole ecosystem? I mean, I know it does a lot of things, um, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that software projects are they're complex kind of and they're evolving right and they evolve in a couple dimensions right you've got that they change over time you've got uh that they can have separate branches so you can have parallel development um and then things get more complex the more people you add um you know the more dependencies you add you can have you know um and so gitlab and github are tools that and bitbucket too you know oh, historically yeah. they they're yeah. also part of like code management but you know increasingly things like gitlab ci 
um, or GitHub Actions are moving into, you know, more to do with having continuous integration be like a core part of, you know, where you're keeping your code. Um, so, I mean, it's, it doesn't cover like the whole stack necessarily because of like, there's still a need for like, okay, well, how do we version and track infrastructure? Um, mm. And ML is especially complicated because of you have infrastructure and data dependencies that are really non-trivial. Um, yeah. But, you know, it, these are, these are tools that I think kind of evolved from software and now we're looking at ways to extend them to, to yeah. ML. And I guess what all of them have in common is they all have some sort of web-based Git repository, right? So like I said, some place where you could store your code, share your code, test your code, collaborate, and all of these things like we're mentioning, they're all relevant for machine learning, right? This is a big part of what, you know, the machine learning lifecycle involves. Um, Another thing that I think is also cool about these, these tools, GitLab, GitHub, Bitbucket, um, is that they allow you to configure some sort of authentication, which is also important, right? Like my organization can have its own uh, repository, its own Git or GitLab, I don't know what it's called, account. And uh, we, it's secure, you know, they allow you to make, you know, make, uh, you know, provide role-based access even. Um, another thing is that it allows you, I think besides this whole authentication is automation, which we're gonna get to in a second, that it allows you to automate a lot of things that maybe before you had to do manually. Um, and oftentimes what you're doing locally, right? Oftentimes, I mean, if you're doing some sort of test-driven development and you're writing tests and kind of working your way towards a passing test, you're gonna be doing this, you know, over and over and over again. Um, but it's nice when you have that also when, as you're making a change, pushing it to this mainline code base, you have it automatically tested. Uh, you're getting immediate feedback on, you know, what went wrong, what went well, um, and another thing, I guess, is that it allows you to audit, right, to keep track of what changes someone made, right? That's a huge thing. And probably a whole conversation on its own is the ability to audit or monitor um, the work that we're doing. Um, that's a big, uh, you know, monitoring machine learning is a big one, but also I think just generally just being able to see what the heck is going on. Um, and I think another one that I could think of about all of these is it uh, allows you to track issues, which I think is really cool. So. Uh, I, I'm new to this whole like agile sort of way of working. Teaching is very different. But one thing that we, the way I typically work maybe is different for you, but we, we open up some sort of issue, right? Oh, this needs to be fixed or this needs to be done, this feature. And then it's all gonna be on this GitLab repo. So you go check out the issue, you, you, know, you say who's working on it. Uh, you can kind of you know, continuously put updates on that thing. And then when that issue is done, you close it. So it's like also a place where you can track work, not only code but assignments in some way yeah i mean totally agree with all of that i think i found i was most surprised when i started this job that you know i had known about github before and i was using it you know in my capacity as a scientist but i really was just using it as a file server like when i'm yeah. done with the project i'll put it on github so yeah, I yeah, yeah, yeah. have Same it here. And it's Same like, it's so much more than that. Like you really can use it. I think the power to go, you know, have these really, like it's, Git is a set of pointers, right? Like it's a graph of pointing to different versions yeah. and yeah. it's great to have everything connected. Like at this point in time, this is the data I was using in the, you know, my code. And this is, you know, like my pipeline of perhaps, you know, what I was going to do to analyze my data and uh, I mean, it's not always because like I said, it can be complicated to do those things oh, in sure. Git, but um, you know, it's, it's a pretty powerful tool when you get it working for your setup. Yeah, that's a great, great, great point when you actually get it working. <laughs> now, I'm most familiar with GitLab. So I know that GitLab gives you continuous integration for free, right? But what about some of these other, I mean, uh, obviously a big part of the tool that you worked on 
uh, CML, which we're going to get to in a little bit. I keep saying that, but yeah, we're going to get to it. Um, but yeah, that, that also integrates with GitHub. And do, does that provide continuous integration as well? Or do you have to add things to that to get that? Yeah, so uh, I think it was in 2018 that GitHub launched GitHub Actions, which is um, their CI system. Um, I think it's fairly comparable to GitLab CI, at least at the level that I interface with them, which admittedly is probably not as intense as some people. But for me, I have found them both to be, you know, fairly similar. Nice. Um, Good to know. Uh, yeah, so, so that one, uh, so GitHub has GitHub Actions, just like GitLab has GitLab CI/CD, um, and I know Atlassian has, and Bitbucket has something also, uh, but I haven't okay. used it yet. Um, and we have a lot of requests for that actually in the project, oh, really? in all projects. So I think Bitbucket will be something that we're, you know, nice, is, is nice. a priority for us sometime soon. Um, but yeah, so CML is not like it's technically it's not a CI system, but it's a project that helps you use existing CI systems, which okay, would be like right. GitHub Actions or GitLab okay. CI. So it's like a lay, uh, an abstraction built on top of these continuous integration systems. Yeah, it's a set of functions um, and some, you know, we have some use cases developed so that you can help basically tie together the things that you might need for a machine learning project to use continuous integration. Basically, any way, you know, if you wanted to use GitHub Actions, but it was going to be hard for like, you know, there's a couple reasons why it might have been hard and we just set out to solve those kind of give you some neater abstractions than having to uh, write all your own basically like custom yeah. custom. Yeah. And I around. bet you people have done that too. I bet you people have tried to like build their own. I mean, that's like just a, such a common thing. Build, you know, this builder buy question. A lot of people just built something because you know they needed that. There wasn't anything out at the time. Let's you know, you know, people have done it. Devoted a whole quarters worth of work to you know building something, and then next thing you know, this cool tool comes out. And uh, you know, I mean, I think it's kind of good though. Uh, I'm never mad for like this new tool that makes my job you know easier. Uh, but I do think that it can be hard. There's oh, so many new tools coming out. So it's what I like about CML is that it already works with things that I would imagine a lot of ML engineers and data scientists are familiar with, right? Some sort of, you know, it's part of what their, their workflow. So it's just an additional tool that they can use at. It's familiar, which I think is also great. And that's, to me, sometimes uh, that's important. You don't want to have to learn so many new tools. And, and there's a lot of tools in our ecosystem, right? I mean, all these libraries, even multiple languages at times. I mean, it's crazy. Lots of craziness. And, yeah, it's uh, interesting in that way, right? Because like, like, I mean, you don't want to have to learn too much new stuff. And so I think like for people that are already comfortable with Git or GitLab or GitHub, you know, like this is easier than having like a whole separate stack, right? Like there's a lot of projects in the ML experiment tracking space that are like basically yeah. their own stack. Yeah, um, yeah. We're trying not to do that, to be yeah. getting in. But it, it's interesting then because of, you know, like sometimes those projects that are their own stack, you know, it might be built with data scientists in mind who are maybe comfortable predominantly with a GUI or a Jupyter notebook. And so for them to learn Git is, you know, yeah. more yeah. maybe more challenging. So I think we're still sussing out like, okay, at what level of abstraction can we help the most people? Uh, yeah, I'm, that's, I'm glad that you guys are thinking about that because, you know, it, that's, there's a lot of things out there, you know, and, and the more that you could reduce the friction or I guess the, you know, the ability to barrier to entry maybe uh, to learn these tools and actually create value, the better. Now, this is a nice segue into what we've been kind of getting at now. CICD is great. It's been around for a while. DevOps is a well-known, um, I guess, set of practices, but CICD for machine learning is hard. Uh, I've outlined three, three things I'd love to talk about of why they're hard. One, there's data, right? You know, you have uh, schema changes, you have, uh, you know, your distribution is changing over time, volume, right? You have 
model. So you have some uh, some some aspect of non-determinism, right? Things are random. Uh, then you have the code, right? That needs to incorporate business needs and has to do with bugs and configuration. So there's lots of things happening, Oops. and they all need to be dealt with differently. So why, in your in your experience, why do you think CI/CD is so hard for machine learning? And maybe we can kind of talk through these points, or if you have more stuff, whatever you want. Yeah. So I mean, the data set's a really good one, right? Like when you have and an ML model, that model is not just code, right? It also represents the data. And in fact, for like a lot of deep learning models, the data is really far more important than your architecture. 100%. Um, right, so the data is like critical. And, you know, a lot of data sets are not that easy to do Git versioning on, which is where DVC comes mm -hmm. in. So DVC is right. basically a tool for extending Git versioning to large data sets. It is not a replacement for Git. You know, it's just helping yeah. you use Git with data sets. And you kind of pair it up with like, you know, an S3 bucket or whatever storage you like so that you can kind of keep your data lives there, but it's still being versioned by Git and you have a link to the data that's stored in your GitHub repository. Um, so that's, that's kind of the DVC approach for dealing with data dependencies. Um, and, you know, that is kind of a piece that, you know, if you have essentially Git tracking now on your data set, then you can use changes in data sets to trigger your CI loop. But if you didn't have your data under any kind of source control, then changes in your data set won't trigger the CI. It would only be changes in your source code. Yeah. So you need to have data management um, and easy ways to you know, push and pull data between where it's stored and where you're gonna be testing your model or training your model. I mean, all of these things are really non-trivial when your data set yeah. is kind of over, you know, in a not that large size. Like if you've got like yeah. big bytes yeah. of data, you've got to start And that's typically it, right? Like, you're, you know, in production systems, you're typically working with lots of data gig in, in the gigabytes range, right? Or even more petabytes, you know, if you're working at a heat or, I guess so. But yeah, the point is that lots of data, it's not easy to version that. Uh, I know that there's some workarounds, right? There's a LFS large file store, whatever that you can yeah. add. Like if you have like a big yeah. model that, like what one I've used that for, let's say running tests. So we store like a training artifact in the actual repo and um, that it was too large. So I needed to use that. So like there are ways around it, but it's not always that easy. Like you're saying, there's been some friction. It doesn't always play nice. DVC though, definitely helps with that which is great. Right, right. I mean, it was kind of like you, there is Git LFS, but it's kind of another option. And so you don't have to use an LFS server. You can just use your bucket. Um, you know, it, I, I, starting from scratch, I found DVC. I mean, I'm biased because I work at this organization <laughs> now, but yeah, yeah, I did yeah. find it a lot easier to interface with than, you know, getting into LFS. Yeah. And, um, this is great. So there's volume, right? You have sampling over time, you have schema, right? But now let's talk about the models. So now CICD for models is also tricky, right? You have lots of different uh, algorithms that you may want to try out, maybe run some hyperparameter tuning. Um, so there may be the need to retrain things. Why doesn't that play so nice with CICD generally, like when you're working with traditional software? Right. So if you are doing a CI system, you some people are interested in doing model training in a CI system, like maybe the experiment that they would, you know, commit and then use as the CI test would be something to do with model training. But it could also be that they've already figured out, you know, the best hyperparameters for their model and then they're just going to check in, you know, that completed model into their CI system and then run some tests to evaluate it in a production like environment. Um, so there's a couple ways that people will end up working with models in a CI system, but kind of universally, ML models are, I mean, they're quite difficult sometimes. Like, I mean, even if you're working with scikit-learn and 
all of the things you're doing are just like matrix algebra, you can very quickly run out of memory on your laptop. Um, yeah. It's very unpleasant. Yeah. Have to, yeah. <laughs> not fun. Um, so even if you're not doing something that requires a GPU, it can be fairly intensive. And a lot of ML applications do require GPUs. And so by default, GitLab CI and GitHub Actions, um, you know, the runners that they're on are not, you know, they might not be up to the task. Um, so, you know, we want to be able to let you use whatever resources are going are necessary for your project. That's a great point. The, the, you know, the, comp the compute that you actually need may not match what your CI CD actually does, right? It's not meant to, you know, have that, that large of a load. It's meant to do small things, run small jobs, run a suite of tests or something like that. Uh, so even that alone actually is a very tough challenge, right? Uh, yeah. Can you, I mean, I'm sure there's ways, I've never heard of this, but I'm sure there's ways to, like, you can just use a GitLab runner with a GPU. I mean, obviously, is that what, I guess we'll get to, what, is that what CML allows, or is that, is there some other workaround? So um, there's a couple workarounds. So you can create something called a self-hosted runner, and this is not special to CML, but like lots of people, you know, you can use a self-hosted runner, which is a computer that you are managing. It can be something on-premise, it could be something in the cloud, and you are basically going to set it up to work as a runner, and that is like both GitHub Actions and GitLab CI make it very easy to do that. Um, you know, it's just a couple of steps. Um, so you can do that. And then one of the things that we've been working on in CML is how do you actually provision some cloud instances? So like, you know, if you're using um, a self-hosted runner, it's got to be on and listening, basically. Mm -hmm. But how can we say, okay, every time I check in some code, let's automatically spin up an EC2 instance that has a GPU that wasn't on before and then turn it off when we're all done. Yeah, yeah. So I, I bet you doing that without, you know, some tool makes it hard. I mean, it's possible, like you said, but you may have to do a lot of work. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Uh, and, and even our approach is like uh, it uses some it uses Docker machine for that too. So like you know, uh, don't want to take all the credit there. That is, you know, we, we <laughs> built a use case, but yeah, we are yeah. we're working on some great work by the Docker machine team. Awesome. And then there's this third third component where we talked about it makes it hard as the code, right? So oftentimes machine learning code has to incorporate a lot of biz changing business needs, right? Things that are all constantly evolving. Now, software you can do that, right? There's oftentimes software is you know built to solve some business problems, so that often changes. That's not new, but there's you know I guess there's some added complexity to the code of machine learning code. Can we talk a little bit about that? Why like why is the code different from just regular software, or is it is it different? Yeah, I mean, so there's kind of like this blurring between, so a lot of software projects now contain like an ML part, right? Like I find like ML is being applied in almost every domain. I mean, I think almost every yeah. business using it in some way. Um, and so it's, you've often got software projects that are more traditional that have an ML component in them. You know, it's just part of the stack. Um, and so it, it's kind of interesting, like, you know, how do we get that to play nice with the more traditional aspects of software development where people have all these practices? So, I mean, our philosophy is let's get people to use the same tools for versioning all of the code and the experiments that have to do with, um, you know, with uh, your ML project as what's in the rest of the stack. Um, and like I said, I think that works, you know, it's not going to work for every team. Um, some teams will prefer maybe just to have a separate tool entirely for all of their ML experiments and testing. Um, but our philosophy is kind of like, let's put this 
with the exact same tools you can use on the rest of the project. I think that's great. And it's easier for someone like myself to go and pick it up, integrate it. Now I'm like, you know, eager to try that out. So this is a, uh, a wonderful segue into the last part. I would love to talk about the tool that you worked on, CML. Um, so what, first off, what does CML stand for? Yeah, it's continuous machine learning. And I think we picked it so that we could keep having projects that have a three letter acronym. So we have DVC and CML. <laughs> I love that. Nice. So CML. And so doing a little bit of research on it, it seems like it, it's built to address three needs, right? There's the data component. So how to handle these large data sets. There's a compute component, right? How do we use cloud compute easily, maybe nicely? Uh, and then there's also the need for metrics, right? There's some way to have some sort of human readable report while you're doing all of this stuff. So let's talk a little bit about CML and yes, yeah, go ahead, whatever you want. Cool, yeah, so CML is kind of our first foray into, um, into CICD. Um, we had a lot of people asking, you know, in the DVC Discord channel, which is um, definitely like, that's kind of a community hub. We have a really active channel there. Oh, nice. um, we'll so we'll link always... in, the, in the video, yeah. Yes. Oh, yes. That's great. Is it, it's a Slack? Is it a Slack community? Sorry, Just a Discord channel. Yeah. Oh, it's, Discord, uh, okay. it's our support channel, but there's, you know, people come in and like, you know, there's a lot of predictable questions, but like, you know, which are kind of clues when you get those over and over again, like, okay, we got to fix the docs here. But yeah. there's also like people who come in with these crazy scenarios and then they're figuring out a way that they're going to set this up. And so you read about scenarios and uses that you would never have dreamed of. And it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of people who say like, I want to do CI. How do I do this with DVC? Um, and so DVC had kind of solved like one of the parts about how do we, you know, do data versioning and how do we let data set changes trigger you know, feedback from a CI system and also how do we transfer? Because I mean, one thing that DVC, you know, does really well is it's kind of a nice wrapper for transferring data from cloud storage to whatever machine you're currently on. It makes that's the right. syntax a lot closer to doing like a Git clone. Um, so that's, that's pretty nice. And so it makes it pretty There's like some syntax around like what it's like you can connect it to like an S3 bucket. What is that called? There's like a word for it though. Like a, it's like you can like a connector, like a a storage, I don't know what it's called, but you can point it to something that it can constantly look at. Right, yeah, you set up your data remote, um, data and then remote. you can push and pull to that remote. And so it's like this really nice high level syntax, I think, for, you know, saying, okay, on this, you know, CI runner, then let's pull our data set. Um, and that works pretty well. So we've got that. And um, what about the compute? The compute. CPUs APUs, right? Using cloud compute. How does CML help with that? So we created a use case um, using Docker machine, like I mentioned, which is, um, you know, this is all the work of our guy, David, who uh, it's a pretty brilliant, I'm really impressed with it. I think it's like the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, wow. So anyway, what it does is when you uh, commit and, and you get that commit is pushed to the repository, GitHub Actions or GitLab CI will um, then use Docker machine to spin up um, your own instance and whatever, you know, resources you had directed it to. Like if you have an AWS account, it can create an EC2 instance with the GPU you want, any AMI you want on it. Um, so it's really nice. And then it will run your training job on that machine and then turn off the machine when it's done. And so I remember doing this for the first time and being like, I have just used, ran a computer that GitHub owns to turn on another computer that's like in Ohio because that's, you know, the zone yeah, I was yeah, in. Yeah, that and, turn 
<laughs> it's so powerful. It's so yeah, cool. Yeah. That's it. I never really thought about that, but yes, this is, you know, I'm like, you know, telling this computer to do that and then do this. It's like, yeah, a lot of orchestration. Is that, right, is that, right. is that also a part of the challenge with, uh, I guess maybe doing CI in, um, for machine learning The like, you know, I guess, like, I don't know, I guess configuring that, all of that, is that a challenge as well? Totally. I mean, there is like a, there's a lot of work in infrastructure as code. Um, I think a good project there to check out if you're interested in it is called Terraform. And it's oh, basically yeah. all of, yeah, how do we codify the infrastructure we're using because of, I mean, the ability to replicate a machine learning model, um, you know, a training run or a test run of it is, is going to be fairly contingent on a lot of cases on your infrastructure. Um, yes. So yes. you need to have it versioned in some way and able to recreate it. Like one of the DevOps principles is also make it easy to completely recreate the environment. Like, you know, just yeah. it should be something that we can destroy and recreate from scratch in a few minutes. Yeah. I think that's that, that might be hard. I mean, maybe you could speak on this too, but do you think for the more researchy oriented people, I don't know how to say it, is that hard to, to think that way, you know, that my, you know, what I've been spending all this time on may, you know, have to, you know, be tore down and I might have to start all over again. It's really, uh, it is completely new to me to be thinking about, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I always, to some extent was thinking about the infrastructure because of, it was always like there, like when I was doing research, we didn't really use cloud services at all. Um, so it was kind of on my mind, but more in the way of like, oh, I really hope nobody spills juice on the file server today. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's crazy. So many different sets of problems. And then yeah. uh, the last part of all this, right, is in machine learning, you need to know, are you improving, right? Am I doing well? Am I doing bad? Um, so you need some way to also have metrics, right? Some sort of human readable report, something that tells you how we're doing. Why is that a challenge for machine learning and how does CML also help with that? Yeah, so, um, you know, in a lot of CI systems, they're kind of built for pass fail type notifications. Like by default, you get a binary signal of like, did the runner complete the job or not? And yeah. Sometimes that is totally fine. If you have that and the logs from the runner and you know, you can figure out what the error was and it's great. Um, but ML is, I mean, it's really challenging to, you know, you, you often need, in addition to some really detailed metrics being reported, um, data viz helps a lot, you know, oh, some yeah. kind of dashboard, um, you know, I mean, I think that there's so much like ML models themselves are really high dimensional. You've often got millions or billions of parameters. Your data set is a very high dimensional thing. And a lot of these things behave non-linearly. And so, you know, it's often not enough to just know like, okay, did I get above a certain score, you know, on some accuracy metric? Cause you need to know, okay, well, you know, in certain subsets of the data set, which could be really critical, how well did it perform? You know, yeah. what are the features that I'm using? Am I okay with these features being used? Um, and so you really need that information, which is hard to get and often hard to do with complete certainty. Um, but you want to make educated decisions about what model you're putting out into the world. And, you yeah. know, I think you just need, you need to look at it from a couple angles. Yeah. Visualizations are key, right? Especially to communicate to maybe non-technical stakeholders, the ability to show a graph that like, you know, says one thing and, you know, communicates it very clearly. It goes a long way. Can you talk a little bit about what, like, what is possible with, uh, with respect to visualization and metrics? Like, can I, any sort of visualization or is there certain things that you can do? Yeah. So, uh, we made CML to work 
kind of, I mean, we're, we're trying to be pretty agnostic to what kind of tools people already like to use. Um, I know people are so particular about their visualization libraries and like, <laughs> I get it, you know, I don't want to use Matplotlib. I'm sorry, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so yeah. people are really particular. So we uh, made CML so that it actually works with any visualization library because it's not really in your code at all. Like it doesn't work at the level of like, it's not something that you put in your Python code and have it monitor what you do or anything. It's like a, you know, after your script has run, whether you used R or Python or whatever, um, if you produced like a PNG file using any visualization library, you can then put that file in your CML report. So CML reports are kind of our way of um, displaying more information on a pull or a merge request. So now instead of having just like, you know, a log output from the runner, sure. you can return images from the runner as well. And that could be data viz, it could be a table that you have. Um, it's just a markdown file that you can stick whatever you want in it. You can actually put sound files in it too. Uh, oh, something, wow. I've never had a reason to use this, nobody has. <laughs> But technically, you can put like any kind of file you want. Interesting. Maybe you have like uh, I don't know if you're training your model on like you know acoustics or something like that, and you want right. to hear the predictions. I don't know, but that's cool. Uh, and can you? How easy is it to to use these tools? How, in your experience, uh, talking with a lot of different people, uh, showing them how your tool works, uh, for people that are curious of getting you know getting started with this, playing around with it uh what 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 should they do how would you recommend someone going about learning this uh, are there some tutorials maybe that you could point us to uh, we can always link them in after but yeah what are your thoughts on that so there's lots of writing about continuous integration um but i would probably you know if you're a data scientist i would maybe not recommend starting there i kind of think like when you see it working i think seeing it the first time is a better way to understand what the terms mean um, than just reading it. I felt, I mean, I had been reading for yeah. months when I started this job and I, I don't think it really clicked until I just made a GitHub action. Like that was the moment. And making a GitHub action is not like crazy hard. Um, I mean, it's, it's actually pretty much, you put one, like, one file in your GitHub repository. Um, and I think GitHub wow. has some amazing docs. I'm sure GitLab also has like some getting started docs, which yeah, are really solid. Great docs. Shout out great. to GitLab, I love your docs. <laughs> Fantastic, okay, so go to those. Um, and when you see it working, like you'll be like, Oh, okay. But like, if you just read it, it can be kind of hard, I think, at least for yeah. me, I found it quite challenging. You know, I, I, I get that. It's like, this is a very hands-on sort of thing, right? You need to kind of see it to know how to use it. Now, you, I just want to shout out that uh, Al has started a series, right? You've done a, a series on CI, CD. Can you talk a little bit about that so anyone's interested in watching that? Yeah, so we're getting started a video series like, you know, we were blogging about this a little bit, but just kind of figured, let's just show it. Um, so uh, at the DVC YouTube channel, which is just, I mean, if you just Google DVC, I think DVC YouTube channel, yes. Uh, we are in some like SEO competition with the Disney Vacation Club, but I think we'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that sounds interesting. Okay, cool. So I'm definitely, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to make sure that everyone has links to this. Um, please feel free to reach out to me or to Elle, of course, about how to use this. Um, I think she's posted some stuff on the channel, but yeah, I, I was poking around. I love the videos. I love the blogs, but I do agree that it's great to see it, right? Like I want to show me how to use this thing. What does it actually look like, right? Because uh, yeah, sometimes reading this, it's, especially again, I know a lot of data scientists come from all sorts of backgrounds, but a lot, I know uh, many that are just, you know, DevOps, it's like, oh, God, it's 
you know, I don't want to deal with any of that. So when they look at all this, it's just like, you know, what is this? But when they see it, it's like, okay, I could do that. Right. Uh, smile, you know, it's, it's, it seems less intimidating or maybe less confusing because I know learning about a lot of these engineering things can be a lot. You know, I've already spent all this time studying the algorithms and knowing how to model. I have, a, you know, all these things that I had to learn and now all these other things, you know, and I feel bad. We talked about this before in, uh, on a different show, but these quote unquote full stack data scientists that have to know everything, you know, and um, this is nice because you kind of, you're doing that. You're doing DevOps, right? It's definitely all when that, you know, that ballpark, but it seems like it's, it's, uh, I guess, use much more user friendly, you know, especially with something like GitHub, which a lot of people use. Like I, I remember the, years ago, I was just using it, using it to store my code, store my code and use it for like my resume or something, because that's, that's literally all I knew how to use it for here. Look at this link where, where I have some code and stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much how it started for me, too. I, I sometimes want to tell people, like, it's totally okay if GitHub, if you find it quite difficult to really yes, figure yes. it out. Like, it's not yes. that, I didn't find it that easy. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, in, in our field, you know, we, the, I guess it's just the nature of the type of people that are, I guess, are attracted to it. But there's so much going on. It's okay to say, I don't know how to do that. This is, this is tough. Uh, I, I know that, you know, there's different opinions on that, but, you know, as, I guess maybe as a former teacher, I'm, I want people to learn and I want people to know that it's okay if it's not immediately clear to you how to, you know, use all of this stuff or even understand all of it. But um, I think, yeah, like the tools like this make that easier. You know, there's a lot of tools that are coming out there that make what used to be a very complicated process now like easy, you know, and a lot more simpler. Um, and I, I'm sure that there's some trade-offs there, right? Maybe, you know, you, you don't have to learn all this background. I've had, I've heard that before where, you know, people talk about, you know, these new data scientists that don't know anything about some of these things or this concept. But at the end of the day, you know, it, this, again, whatever works, if you could do it, I'm cool with that. Um, I do think it's important to learn some of these things if you're interested, but you don't have to, you know, I think you can be effective in your day to day, just using a lot of these great tools out there. And if you get great value for the business, then what else really matters, you know? That's so well said. I mean, I, I really worry sometimes about, you know, data scientists that have this, this weight of like, oh my gosh, I have to be a unicorn. And yeah. I think businesses are still figuring out, like, you know, yeah. how do we make data science work in our company? And there's a lot of positions, like, I definitely interviewed for some that, like, I'm pretty sure it was just a regular software engineer job. That I they bet had you it was, yeah. Want to know how to build this, you see C++, have, like, five years of software. I'm like, man, this is, I mean, it's, I get it. Uh, you know, but yeah, it, there is a lot of that, you know, and um, I don't know. There's been some opinions. I, I follow some people on Twitter. I'm not going to say no names, but some very famous people who are have big names in the game that, you know, have opinions on these things. But I think, you know, it's okay. It's okay to not know everything. I, so, I mean, if anyone's heard me on the show, there's a lot of things I don't know. I'm constantly learning. I bet you you're learning every day. And to be honest, I would put my money that a lot of us are all still figuring this out. Uh, even when I went to grad school for data science, it wasn't really like, it's hard to teach this. This is a new thing. It's like a moving target, you know, and yeah, there's some old things there, right? You know, math has been around for a while. Statistics has been around for a while, but it's in a new context. And uh, there's all these other layers too, where like you have to integrate into the business. And even that alone, integrating machine learning into or data science into your business and applying it effectively is not easy. It's not trivial. Um, there's a lot of moving parts there, right? There's this tech part, but then there's this cultural part sorts of things going on and it's okay to not have it all together at least that's what i think yeah i totally agree i mean i really think that the majority of organizations like 
scientific nonprofit business, you know, that are using data science and still, I think there's still a lot of struggle to figure out, you know, how do we actually create something valuable out of this and kind of use it to inform the way that, you know, we grow or what our services are. And, you know, it's not easy. I think there's quite a lot of reports out there about, you know, the failure rate of data science projects is kind of high, you know, it's, it's very high. I've heard right? stats of like 80% of them or so. I don't know, like some crazy That's number. That's a number I've like, heard too. Yeah, and it makes sense too, because I've, you know, working in this, you see like there's a lot of like failure, you know, and I think now that I'm thinking, I feel like you're perfect for this because you, you come from that research background, right? You have, you understand what it's like to, you know, have a lot of ideas, hypothesize about things and go off on these tangents. But now working closely, more closely, I guess, with the engineering side of things, you see how, how important it is to structure that process, you know, and it's it's great that you kind of hold both things you know you have a good sense of, of of how important it is for someone to experiment and play and that's important right but also how to productionize it how to actually make it valuable for the end users and you know it's like a tough thing you have to learn a lot of you have to know a lot of different things and uh, it is a lot of uh, i guess there's a large i guess a lot there's a lot of things you need to know and um, yeah i feel i feel bad for people just turning in sometimes because i'm like man <laughs> I don't know how I did all this, but I, yeah, I know how to use this stuff now, but it's, it's, it's constantly, uh, it's, it's a constant process of relearning something, even something as old as Git, like the, I'm learning new tricks with Git sometimes. Um, right. and that's right. like such a basic thing for some people, but I'm like, no, not always, you know, it's not always easy to debug, you know, a bunch of stuff going on in that. And, uh, yeah, but anyways, yeah. I feel like I can go up on tangents on that. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that's so interesting. I just, I guess I'll just say that I think the, the cool thing about MLOps in particular is like, I feel like sometimes it's so easy to get into the place of like, well, data scientists just need to do more of this or something and that will fix everything or, you know, yeah, businesses yeah, need to I do this. And I feel like yeah. MLOps takes the perspective of like systems level, you know, it's not really about blaming anybody or putting it on individuals as much as it is about develop like, okay, where in the whole process does this break down, you know, what, what are the real bottlenecks to preventing things from going into production or even just getting tested in a timely way so that data scientists yeah. get good quality feedback, you know, yeah. And yeah. I love that perspective. I think it's probably like, it's, yeah, it's just, I think it's really illuminating and uh, even just like reading a book about DevOps, it like can really shift your thinking to yeah. You know, sure. you excited to like, you know, structure. I mean, I, for me, when I was like learning a lot of this stuff, I was excited to try it. I'm like, oh, this sounds awesome. Let's, you know, let's use this. It'll make things better and more productive. But, you know, it does. Like for me, when I first started learning about test-driven development, it was more sort of cover my own ass. Like I'm, I, I make so many mistakes. And so I write tests to protect myself, to catch those mistakes. So when I publish it, you know, I, I, don't, I don't look crazy. But it's really like these, for me, it, it, was, it was helpful. You know, all of these principles, all these practices actually have made me a better data scientist, ML engineer, uh, uh, even more structured thinker, I would say. Um, and now I, I start seeing the world in a new way because it's like, I don't know, I, I love the engineering side of this. So I guess I'm a little biased, but um, I love that, 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 I guess that, that gap between, you know, there's all sorts of ideas. It's crazy. You know, there's all stuff going on, but then the productionizing it, you know, it's, it's, they're, they're very different, but they're also very, they're so important and I, it's made me a better, you know, I guess, worker, you know, knowing how to integrate these two things. Well, this is so much fun, Elle. I wanna, I wanna thank you so much for taking out the time to first talk with us, uh, give us an idea about what CML is. I would love to maybe even further this conversation another time, so we'll touch base about that. But for anyone that's interested in listening, 
please reach out to Elle. She's very easy to talk to. Um, there's a lot of great content that she's putting out. Uh, I'm going to link them inside the video. And uh, yeah, this is really fun, guys. And we really appreciate the time that you, you took to listen to this. And Elle, maybe one thing to close is, um, since you learned a lot of lessons, I bet, you know, through a lot of failure, a lot of trying things out, what's one, what's one takeaway that you'd love to share with the community? It could be anything, something small, something Ooh. big. What's something you'd like to share with us? Uh, something I like to do with, you know, MLOps communities, want to share best practices. You know, this really worked well with me, or I learned this lesson and I want to share that. What's that one thing for you? Yeah, I think that maybe my favorite lesson from DevOps that I've learned so far is that when people are failing in your project, you know, if you look that there's somebody who's failing by whatever you consider it, um, kind of try to take the most blameless post-mortem possible and think, you know, this was a system that enabled somebody to, you know, not get something right. And so taking the perspective, you know, that there may have been a way that the whole systemically we could have prevented this. Like if somebody forgot to do something, maybe that was a thing that should have been automated in the first place. You know, maybe there was too much cognitive load for people to handle all of these manual steps. You know, yeah. maybe something took a while because of there was a bottleneck in handing something off that could not possibly have been remedied because of two teams had competing interests. You know, so I think that taking the perspective of are we really set up for people to be able to move quickly? Um, yeah. before, you know, I, I think that's so valuable I and in like a life changing yeah. way to rethink. Yeah, that is. It, it shapes the way maybe you view your coworkers. You know, it's like maybe we have not necessarily like, uh, I don't know. But I, I, I don't want to I want to ruin that. But that was I love that. And I hope for anyone listening that uh, that you, you apply that. I know for me, one thing, something maybe not exactly related, but this concept of I'm not my code. Um, and, and, you know, that it's people putting so much um, importance on like these small failures when it really may be just a, an operational thing. Right. You know, if we had this in place you know, this one person will have to do everything, you know, and I guess showing a little bit of grace that this is, a, you know, a growing feel things are changing. Um, and I think that that actually, that's something I'm going to definitely think about because um, I deal with that every day, right. But anyways, I want to thank you so much for this time, Mel. Uh, thank you so much for sharing with this. And uh, I hope you have a great rest of the evening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really love this community. Awesome. Bye, guys. Take care.